You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Colonial Pipeline shuts down some systems after a ransomware attack, disrupting refined petroleum product delivery in the eastern U.S. We'll check in with Sergio Caltagirone from Dragos for his analysis. Other ransomware attacks hit city and tribal governments. A joint U.K.-U.S. alert on SVR tactics is issued, and the SVR may have changed its methods accordingly. Solar Winds revised downward its estimate of the number of customers affected by its compromise. Rick Howard previews his CSO Perspectives podcast on risk metrics. And four guilty pleas in a bulletproof hosting RICO case. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 10th, 2021. Colonial Pipeline disclosed Saturday that it has been the victim of a ransomware attack. The company said that on May 7th, Colonial Pipeline Company learned it was the victim of a cybersecurity attack and has since determined that the incident involved ransomware. Quickly after learning of the attack, Colonial proactively took certain systems offline to contain the threat. These actions temporarily halted all pipeline operations and affected some of our IT systems, which we are actively in the process of restoring. The incident began with the attackers stealing almost 100 gigabytes of data last Thursday, and then, Bloomberg reports, locked Colonial Pipeline computers and issued their ransom demand, at which point Colonial began taking systems offline in a precautionary attempt to contain the effects of the attack. The affected systems appear to have been business systems, not control systems. Later in the show, we'll hear from Sergio Caltagirone from Dragos for his insights. Recorded Future tells Bloomberg that the ransomware strain involved appears to be DarkSide. Dragos tweeted that they've seen DarkSide in OT networks before, so in this respect at least, the incident has precedence. DarkSide is a Russian gang, and while Russian criminal groups are regarded as closely connected to Moscow's intelligence and security services, NBC reports that for now most are treating the incident as a financially motivated caper, not state-directed sabotage. Some, like CrowdStrike co-founder and Silverado Policy Accelerator Executive Chairman Dmitry Alperovich, regard this as a distinction without a difference. NBC quotes him as saying, quote, whether they work for the state or not is increasingly irrelevant, given Russia's obvious policy of harboring and tolerating cybercrime. End quote. Colonial Pipeline describes itself as the largest refined products pipeline in the United States. 
transporting more than 100 million gallons of fuel daily to meet the energy needs of consumers from Houston, Texas, to the New York Harbor. Its deliveries include gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. The incident represents a major disruption of the U.S. energy sector, Wired notes, although it's not the first cyber attack the sector has sustained. Infrastructure targets are increasingly attractive to ransomware operators. Reuters reports that oil futures have risen in anticipation of shortages. In an effort to ameliorate the expected shortages, the Federal Motor Carrier Administration has issued an emergency waiver of certain provisions of Parts 390 through 399 of Title 49 Code of Federal Regulations, effectively permitting drivers in 17 states and the District of Columbia to work extra or more flexible hours while they're hauling refined petroleum products that would ordinarily have been moved through Colonial's pipelines. The expectation is that road transportation will take up some, although not, of course, all, of the slack left by the pipeline disruption. The emergency directive is, for now, expected to remain in effect through June 9th. Politico says the incident is seen as a major challenge to the U.S. administration. The New York Times reports a Saturday evening White House statement to the effect that President Biden had been briefed on the incident and that the government was working to, quote, assess the implications of this incident, avoid disruption to supply, and help the company restore pipeline operations as quickly as possible, end quote. The statement also said the government was working with other organizations in the fuel sector to increase their protection against such attacks. Investigation is still in its early stages, and it's unclear how the attackers got into colonial systems, but the Times recounts a priori speculation that they might have exploited the now well-known and now patched compromises of the SolarWinds Orion platform and Microsoft Exchange server. For what it's worth, the goons responsible for the attack say they're apolitical and that in the future they'll choose their targets more carefully. Vice reports that the dark side gang seems concerned to head off the assumption that they're working for Moscow. They wrote in a statement, quote, We are apolitical. We do not participate in geopolitics. The Hoods tweeted, Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society. They go on to say, From today, we introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future. End quote. So, honest crooks, not spies or saboteurs, says them, the rhetorical genre, especially the promise to avoid social consequences in the future, is what might be called unlikely insistence. It's sweet of them to be so concerned, albeit belatedly, about the externalities of their business, but we hope they'll forgive any skepticism their communique meets. Ransomware has, of course, hit elsewhere. In unrelated incidents, both the city of Tulsa and the government of the three affiliated tribes disclosed that they'd sustained ransomware attacks. Native News Online reports that on April 28th, the government of the three affiliated tribes, that is the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arakara Nation, has told its staff that it was affected by ransomware. More recently, the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was hit by ransomware that took down some of its networks and websites. The record by Recorded Future says that the city is currently in the process of restoring its systems, only a small percentage of which appear to have been affected. 
A joint advisory issued Friday by the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre and three US agencies, CISA, FBI, and NSA, describes the tactics, techniques, and procedures Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service used in the SolarWinds Compromise and elsewhere. The advisory is specific and unambiguous in attributing the attacks to the SVR. Its big point is that the SVR uses publicly available exploits for scanning and exploitation of vulnerable systems. A list of exploits the SVR is known to have used is provided, with the qualification that the list can't be regarded as exhaustive. In its choice of targets, the SVR has recently shown a willingness to compromise trusted software supply chains. It also scanned for vulnerable instances of Microsoft Exchange Server, activity hitherto associated for the most part with Chinese intelligence operations. Bleeping Computer notes that a foreseeable reaction to the U.S. and U.K. advisories has indeed been observed. The SVR is changing both its targeting and its TTPs. SolarWinds has significantly reduced the number of customers it believes were affected by the compromise of the company's Orion platform in 2020, where estimates had once run as high as 18,000, SolarWinds reported in an SEC filing that fewer than 100 customers appear to have been affected. The company explains the changed estimate like this, quote, It's important to note that this group of up to 18,000 downloads includes two significant groups that could not have been affected by Sunburst due to the inability of the malicious code to contact the threat actor's command and control server. One, those customers who did not install the downloaded version, and two, those customers who did install the affected version, but only did so on a server without access to the Internet. Among a third group of customers, those whose affected servers accessed the Internet, we believe, based on sample DNS data, only a very small proportion saw any activity with the command and control server deployed by the threat actor. This statistical analysis of the same DNS data leads to our belief that fewer than 100 customers had servers that communicated with the threat actor. This information is consistent with estimates provided by U.S. government entities and other researchers and consistent with the presumption the attack was highly targeted. End quote. Finally, four gentlemen have taken guilty pleas to U.S. federal RICO charges, that is, charges under the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, involving their operation of a bulletproof hosting service that provided infrastructure for cybercriminal gangs. The malware hosted by their service included Zeus, SpyEye, Citadel, and the Black Hole Exploit Kit. The U.S. Department of Justice says that the four, two Russian citizens and their Lithuanian and Estonian employees, face up to 20 years imprisonment. They're scheduled for sentencing throughout the summer. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off 
by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. We checked in with Sergio Caltagirone from Dragos for his insights. Here's my conversation with Sergio. Uh, this is a this is a a, a major event. It is um, a company which provides forty percent of the gas production um, or distribution to the east coast of the United States. Without this pipeline, you would see uh, gas shortages. Um, you would see. Uh, prices rising for consumers, um, obviously impacts on uh, gas-heavy businesses um, and operations that rely on large amounts of gasoline. And so, you know, from that perspective, there probably hasn't been um, a larger cyber impact to the country's, like, fundamental infrastructure uh, before as this one. What about from a national security point of view? I mean, we, we've seen uh, the president has responded. He says that uh, he's been briefed throughout. But uh, you know, it strikes me that hitting a pipeline of, of this size, um, will they have our attention? Oh, yes. And, and maybe to great detriment to them. Um, mm. You know, <laughs> this is an area where, uh, you know, cyber criminals who are in it for the money, which the, this group uh, claims to be, you know, I don't really trust too much that criminals say, honestly. So, you know, we but if we take them at their word and that this is only a monetary uh, operation for them, then clearly they're not doing well uh, because this is bringing a lot more attention to them than is safe for them to continue operations. So from that perspective, I think it is, you know, I think it, I think, it, it, you know, while it's a negative, there's also a positive aspect to that, which will, it brings a lot more attention, not only to the problem, but to this group in particular, which I hope results in policies and actions um, that allow us to start making inroads against this ransomware threat, which has been plaguing us, you know, for five, seven years now. Um, and, you know, really we need to stop you know, the, the headlines of another company, another company, another company, another organization getting hit all the time. It just, we need to find an end to this madness. 
Do you think this is going to be an inflection point? Is is this a bit of a wake-up call that you know, we might see more effort, more funds, more resources from the federal government to to shore up uh, these bits of critical infrastructure? Um, Dave, I have, a, I have a huge amount of respect for the federal government, having obviously served there myself, and not only the federal government in the U.S., but you know, large national governments worldwide who take this problem very seriously. And I know our, I know the U.S. government and other governments worldwide certainly do. But um, I'm also a realist to some extent and recognize that, uh, you know, what we're trying to accomplish in cybersecurity, um, you know, takes a long time. And I do believe that this is not an inflection point. I believe we've already been at several inflection points before. Um, I believe that we all recognize what the problem in, in, in problems are, and the governments worldwide have done that. I feel like what needs to change is not inflection any longer, um, not introspection, not recognition of the problem. What needs to happen are direct action um, inside organizations, both public, quasi-public, private, um, organizations that we all rely on on a daily basis. And there are organizations that that are doing great. There really are. Um, you just don't hear about them because we only hear about the things that go badly. And, and the, the challenge, though, is that this is a very, very uneven, um, that certain industries, certain sectors are getting a lot of attention, like electric generation gets a ton of, of attention. Nobody wants to see an electric plant go down, right? But how many people talk mm. about, you know, midstream or downstream natural gas or, or gasoline, um, you know, products? Um, not many. You don't hear about that that often. And yet it is a critical part of your infrastructure. All right. Well, Sergio Caltagirone from Dragos, thanks so much for taking time for us today. Thank you, Dave, for having me as always. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard, the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer. Rick, great to have you back. Hey, Dave. So on this week's CSO Perspectives podcast, you are starting a three-part series on new CISO responsibilities. So I am intrigued by this, but uh, I have to admit, uh, I'm not sure what you mean by new responsibility, as if CISOs need more responsibilities. But, so what, what do you have in store for us this week, Rick? Well, you know, Dave, uh, it's no secret that I'm what you might call a gray hair. Okay, I've been mm. doing this stuff for about 25 years. And when yeah. I started back in the day, a CISO's job mostly centered around their deployed security stack, you know, firewalls and antivirus. And if they had any resources, they may even be running a SOC. But today, if you just listen to any of your daily podcast shows, the things that we are talking about involve a whole lot more, like you were saying, lots of responsibilities, you know. Things like IoT and identity and supply chain, just to name a few of them. And for hmm. this series, we're trying to determine if the responsibility to secure those non-traditional critical business functions have been formally moved under the CISO's official list of duties, or are they, and I'm using air quotes here, extra duties as assigned, because there <laughs> seems to be a lot of them. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was just, I'm going to use that exact same phrase. Yeah, yeah. Listen, yeah, so, we've got a know, few more things. Yeah, yeah and the leader, so the leadership is not told the CISO to do it, but we all know that we better do it, or the probability of material impact to our organization might be high. 
And so this right. week's show is about OT or operational technology and industrial control systems or ICS. And I guess it's pretty timely with the colonial yeah. pipeline attacks that we all learned about over the weekend. That's right. Absolutely. So that is on the CyberWire Pro side of things, and you're currently on Season 5 of the podcast, but you're also releasing episodes from Season 1 uh, to the general public. What's, what's happening over there? Yeah, we've been talking about this for the past few weeks. We wanted the public to get a taste of what they were missing from our Pro offering before they had to plop down their hard-earned money on a subscription. And so mm. far, we've released episodes on Sassy, machine learning, and one of my favorites, recommended cybersecurity novels, all right? So I'm having fun with all that. Uh, but this week's episode, we're talking about risk metrics. Hmm. Well, that sounds good. You know, there, I like to talk to folks over here on the Daily Podcast, and, and honestly, there seems to be a lot of confusion about how to even do that or if it's even possible to get a handle on risk metrics. Yeah, I know what you mean. I've struggled with this for my entire career, but it wasn't until I read a book by a guy by the name of Dr. Philip Tetlock many years ago called Super Forecasting, and then I realized there must be a better way. Yeah, I've heard you talk. I think you and I have talked about that book together before. So why was that book so compelling to you? So Dr. Tetlock worked for DARPA, and uh, he was watching CNN one day, and you know how the news shows bring in all these pundits to talk about what's going on in the news. Mm-hmm. And he got really upset because they brought this one guy on who, who forecasted something right once in his career, but has been wrong ever since, right? And so <laughs> he thought there should be like a Chiron running, rolling on the bottom of the screen that says, this guy got one out of 10 correct in the last five years. So right, being, right. Be, being a DARPA scientist, he does this experiment. He puts three groups together, uh, a bunch of academians, uh, the intelligence community, and a group he lovingly refers to as the soccer moms. Uh, now, these weren't really soccer moms. They were just kind of older people that had time to solve problems. And he gave them really hard problems to forecast, like, will President Putin get assassinated in the next three years? And he gave them 500 of these things and graded them over time. And I think I may have, you know, uh, buried the lead, but the soccer mom won the competition by like 46%, okay? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and there's lots of reasons for it, and the book is fascinating. I recommend it, okay? Yeah. Mostly because uh, the soccer moms didn't have a bias. They didn't care who, you know, what what outcome there was. Oh, interesting, right? interesting. I, I can't help thinking of that old phrase about how even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> um, but it did show that there's these group of people uh, that Tetlock calls super forecasters who are really good at this by just examining the evidence. And so the point is that super forecasters know how to forecast risk for really hard problems. And cybersecurity risk is a really hard problem. So in this episode, we talk about how to do just that. All right. Well, we will all check that out. Uh, Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security Ha. I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. 
That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.